Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. Today you'll hear about the response to the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear crises in Japan. This event was held on March 16, 2011. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer Leaning. I'm director of the Harvard University FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at the Harvard School of Public Health. And I teach at the School of Public Health on disasters and human rights. I will moderate today's discussion. Last Friday, March 11, 2011, a catastrophic earthquake that struck Japan also resulted in a vast tsunami engulfing parts of Japan's coastline. That same day, a state of emergency was declared at the Fukushima nuclear power facility, which has subsequently experienced several explosions and fires. More than 3,600 people are confirmed dead, and thousands more are still missing. Large numbers of people have been evacuated from the disaster area, including surrounding the nuclear power plants as a disaster zone, and are reported to be in dire need of food and water and other supplies. Radiation releases from the nuclear power plants are continuing. This combination of crises is absolutely unprecedented. This forum will examine the response to the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear crisis in Japan, disaster leadership in action. I'm very pleased to introduce our panelists for today. They will speak in the order that I am introducing them. After they speak, and after the panel has had a chance to talk and ask questions among themselves, we will open the floor for questions from the audience. Dr. Mike Van Royen is an associate professor at the Harvard School of Public Health and at Harvard Medical School. He is a practicing emergency physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. Dr. Gordon Thompson is a plasma physicist and is the executive director of the Institute for Resource and Security Studies here in Cambridge. He is an expert in issues of nuclear radiation from nuclear power plant disasters. Professor Michael Reich is the Taro Takimi Professor of International Health Policy in the Department of Global Health and Population here at the Harvard School of Public Health. And he is an authority on the political and social issues in Japan and has particular expertise in Japanese experience with disasters. And joining us on the line from Tokyo is Dr. Takashi Nagata. He is an emergency physician who has been involved with the Japanese Medical Association in providing direct relief to the survivors who have been evacuated from the acute disaster zones in Japan. Thank you, Dr. Mike Van Royen. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. Um, I'd like to begin this discussion to talk a little bit about um, the unique characteristics of an earthquake on a populated coastal region um, and uh, the superimposed tsunami, and then uh, the rest of the panelists will comment on uh, kind of radiation issues uh, more, I guess, completely. Um, we are now entering a stage at the relief process, or the stage of relief into recovery, that um, relief workers have to face um, the fact that now, six days later, the operation needs to really start to look at the unlikely event of, of finding survivors and moving towards recovery. This is a delicate process, um, and it needs to be done with sensitivity, but also 
to address the physical needs of the nearly half a million displaced people. Uh, and they are significant um, uh, material needs. The, the magnitude of this earthquake, uh, a 9.0 uh, magnitude earthquake, uh, the destruction that it caused and the resulting tsunami has created a level of displacement and material loss that is unprecedented uh, along the Japanese coastline. It will be an important feature now moving forward to address those material needs in a, in a sensitive way. Material needs like water and food and sanitation and uh, appropriate housing, particularly in, in cold weather that, that people are experiencing now. Um, and other needs such as psychosocial needs and communication needs so that people can be in touch with their families uh, and be in touch with their loved ones and to notify them that they are indeed uh, alive and, uh, and are able to, to uh, communicate. Um, I think that there's some important lessons for disaster responders uh, as international experts as well. This is a very unique emergency in many ways, um, not only because of the radiation issues, but also because of the, the nature of um, Japan as a society and its pr level of preparedness. Japanese preparedness in this uh, sense is probably the best in the world. And um, the, without that level of preparedness, the morta mortality and morbidity would have been significantly worse. Um, I think that relief organizations, as they prepare to work in this area, uh, need to be aware of the, um, so the, the difficulties in accessing locations and areas, the difficulty in working in an area that, that is culturally and linguistically very different, um, and also the requirement for relief personnel to really uh, be experts in their field. Um, so you'll find, for example, that relief organizations, um, UN entities, and other uh, um, international bodies seeking to provide services need to do so in a very targeted, appropriate, professional way. Um, this is not the place to send generalists, for example. Um, so in the, in the days and weeks to come, as the operation moves from relief and uh, uh, search and rescue into recovery, and particularly providing moving rubble to provide access. It will be important to provide the right level of uh, expertise um, and the appropriate personnel to assist uh, in this time of crisis. Thank you, Mike. <clears throat> Gordon. Uh, thank you, Dr. Leaning. Uh, I'll speak about the nuclear part of the emergency, focusing on the Fukushima Daiichi plant, number one uh, station. This station has six operating nuclear power plants and two under construction. Of the six uh, operational plants, three were operating at the time of the earthquake and three were under uh, planned maintenance. The entire station is in a situation called station blackout where normal electricity supplies have been lost. The cores of the three reactors that were operating are all damaged. The reactor buildings in each case are damaged and the containment vessels in two of those plants are damaged. Uh, unit number four uh, has damage to its reactor building and to the spent fuel pool where fuel was removed from the reactor for maintenance purposes. Uh, releases up to now have been relatively small. Uh, however, the potential exists for a much larger release. This potential will exist uh, for days to come and perhaps weeks to come until the reactors are fully stabilized and made safe. 
If a large release occurs, it will take the form of an atmospheric plume which travels downwind. The way in which this causes harm to people is firstly, as the plume passes overhead, uh, people receive radiation, whole body radiation equivalent to x-rays from the passing cloud. Also, radioactive material is deposited on the ground and other surfaces, and people remaining in that location are further exposed. In addition, if a person inhales uh, material from the passing cloud, they're subject to internal irradiation, uh, and the thyroid gland is uh, a notable example of that. The actions that one can take to protect oneself are to evacuate, that is to get beyond the reach of the plume, to shelter if the plume passes, and if uh, the plume is passing, to have some form of respiratory protection. Uh, even a towel, a wet towel, will be a major protection in that case. And to protect the thyroid gland, take potassium iodide uh, tablets. Uh, it's not clear if uh, any of these steps are going to be needed over the coming days and weeks. Uh, if they, these steps do need to be taken, they'll have to be taken very quickly because uh, a release could occur with very little warning and then depending on the wind speed and direction, people could be quickly exposed. Uh, doses uh, at the site boundary have varied dramatically. Uh, at 1100 hours uh, local time, uh, on the 16th, that is today, the dose rate at the site boundary was about 340 millirems per hour. Uh, that's a relatively modest dose. Uh, higher doses have been observed. You'll see on the uh, uh, slide available here an explanation of, of uh, doses. This is a relatively complex matter. I hope we can keep that up during the dialogue to show people. Thank you. Thank you, Gordon. Michael. Um, thank you, Jennifer. I think that uh, I'd like to talk about the human dimensions of uh, this tragedy in Japan. Um, it's, it's in some ways remarkable that it's only been five days, and the extent of the destruction uh, is something that is just totally difficult for all of us to comprehend. Um, so I'd like to make first two points. The, the first point, as Jennifer said, is this is three different disasters, the tsunami, the earthquake, and the nuclear. It's actually created a whole cascade of crises. So it's created social crises, entire villages have been wiped away, it's created uh, grief crises for individuals as individuals have lost family members that they tried to save. Um, it's created economic crises in terms of the inability to get different parts of the Japanese economy going again. Um, it's created pure human nutrition crises. People can't get food, they can't get shelter, um, they can't get safe water. Uh, and, and it's uh, creating also um, uh, psychological crises. One of the natures of uh, nuclear disaster is that it is an invisible contamination. You can't see it and you can't perceive it. It's not tangible. 
Uh, and um, that has to be seen in the context of Japan's history as the only country in the world that has suffered the tragedies of nuclear bombs, two, two nuclear bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so managing all of these different crises at the same time would be a difficult challenge for any government. Uh, Japan currently has a, a party in power, which is the Democratic Party of Japan, which is relatively new in power, and a prime minister who was um, somewhat in a shaky position even before the crisis. So it is a very difficult moment in Japan's history to handle this level of, of disaster. The second point that I wanted to make is uh, the importance of social trust. So this is one of the underpinnings of responding to disaster is to be able to depend on an ability of people to trust their neighbors, to trust what they hear and respond in appropriate ways. One of the things that has happened with this disaster and in previous history is a lack of trust that is spreading in Japan, both with regard to the government as well as with regard to the company that was responsible for the power plants, uh, the Tokyo Electric Power Company. Uh, in some sense, that's natural. Uh, people want to protect their families. There is hoarding. People are buying up food and water in, in Tokyo, in other cities. Uh, but one of the challenges that exists f in responding to this multiple level of crises is to recreate social trust in Japan. And that's something that the public authorities and the private authorities are going to need to struggle with, both in the short term as well as the long term. Thank you, Michael. <clears throat> and now if we could turn to Dr. Nagata. Um, Takashi, yes. I know that you have been uh, working very hard and have not had very much sleep. So it is wonderful of you to join us from Tokyo. Please, uh, could yes. you talk to us? Thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. I am Dr. Takashi Nagata. I am in Tokyo right now. It's 5 a.m. on Thursday. It's day 7. Um, you, uh, you can see what I have done in the last several days in the regiment. Um, um, I left from the scene about 36 hours ago, and during my three days, uh, you can see what I have done. On the first day, I visited Iwaki City. Iwaki is the second largest city in Tohoku, and it's a big place, and there are a lot of people there. Also, there are a lot of shelters, about 140 shelters, and the people evacuated from the affected place about 14,000. Um, on the first day, I did the survey of the shelter. I did it based on the experience of Hurricane Katrina. On Monday, I did, I visited the whole, uh, two shelters and uh, try to provide some basic um, medical support. 
and I also support the decontamination procedure for the people who are afraid of being exposed to radiation. On the Thursday, initially we planned to go to, um, to go to the shelters to provide medical support, but we stopped it. And as I wrote, I we made a decision to retrieve and uh, to to go back from the scene to Tokyo. The reason is um, the situation is getting, I guess, worse in during my stay in just three days, and the situation is changing so rapidly. Every four to six hours, new things happen and it is difficult to catch up. Honestly, on the Saturday, uh, March 15th, I, I cried. I cried three times there. And uh, honestly, I, I became panicked. I became panicked. The situation is we do not have water, food, gasoline and information. Now, uh, the information is limited. The information is not appropriately provided. Um, people in Iraq City look calm, but to see the carefree, it's, it's almost, it's they're very dis dis uh, dis distressed, depressed. Um, it's almost at the boiling point. Um, some of them have already started evacuated by themselves, but the movement is quiet. It, there's no riot, no panic, but it's, it's, it's very, how can I say, quiet, and try to escape from the scene gradually. I came back, just a second, um, I came back to Tokyo for one reason. I, we did the public announcement um, to the, at the media conference, and I, I, I described the, what happened in Iraq City, and, and I also asked the public that we need help from outside. The people in Iraq City cannot call for help, but they need help. And honestly, many people try to go inside Iraq City to send water, supply, and medication, but they hesitate to go inside because they have fear that once they go inside Iraq City, they are exposed to radiation or they might be contaminated with radiation. It is not true. The 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 present situation or present radiation level inside Iraq City is just around two micro sievert per hour. It's it's very small. It's very small. In the public announcement, finally, I mentioned that I my Takashi Nagata will go back to Iraq City uh, as soon as possible. So today, March 17th, in the afternoon, 
if situation is allowed, I will go back to Iraq City and try to start my medical support again there. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. This is what I'd like to say. Thank you, Dr. Nagata. That is very important report, very important report for all of us to hear, and we're very grateful. Uh, could I turn to the panelists for a moment? And uh, Mike, Dr. Van Royen, um, hearing from Dr. Uh, Nagata uh, and picking up on what some of the other panelists have said about radiation, risk communication, and what happens next, um, what do you say about uh, the challenges facing the local humanitarians like Dr. Nagata? What are the challenges they're facing and um, what is the role that good information about radiation might actually play? Um, well, first of all, I, I thank my colleague um, Takashi, who we, you know, we have been following his reports from the field, and, and we deeply appreciate them because they give us a very real, uh, tangible picture of what's going on. Um, I think the major challenges remain uh, access and logistics. It's still the major challenge in this case where there is. Um, you know, roads are out, bridges are out, rubble is in the way, and it's difficult to navigate and to, to move materials to people who have been displaced. Um, I think that the, the, the logistical issues are complicated by the perception that there is significant radiation risk. Um, I believe that um, the, those, I guess those perceptions can be um, addressed, I think, fairly clearly and need to be addressed fairly clearly. Um, in order to encourage people to move through the area and distribute goods and services. The, the, the big challenge in this case, however, will be and continue to be um, finding populations that are displaced and giving them access to services. Um, certainly there, there's enough food, there's enough water, there's enough blankets, there's enough shelter or shelter materials in, in the region um, to supply these uh, uh, people that are displaced. It's just getting them there and providing the logistical support to do so. Um, we, I think, will have to depend largely on the military, who is, uh, you know, there's up to 100,000 troops that will be deployed, probably 60 or 70,000 that are already deployed, um, to help make that happen. Um, so it, it, is a, it has been a relatively short period of time, and hopefully that mobilization can be effective. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, Gordon, this problem of um, command and control, the risk communication issue, you can hear how it's being played out in what Takashi reported, in what you and Michael were both anticipating here. What, what are you seeing as the responsibility of the nuclear power plant authorities and perhaps the government? Well, it's very important for the authorities in general to give clear and consistent statements. Uh, if emergency response is necessary, it's important that it be taken uh, rapidly and in a coherent manner. Uh, some populations uh, should evacuate, others should shelter. Uh, the authorities, if they're on top of the situation, are in a position to make that recommendation. Uh, in order for the recommendations to be followed, people need to trust the statements that are made. Michael, would you like to comment on both what Mike Gordon said and also um, on what Takashi brought up? Um. <coughs> Uh, my understanding, both from what Takashi has said as well as from other contacts that I've had with people in Japan, 
is that um, this may be a situation where trying to solve one problem creates another problem. So Japan has cut off access to the two main highways. The government has cut off access to the two main highways that go north, reserving that for emergency equipment, um, focusing on the nuclear disaster. Um, that has contributed to a breakdown in the private distribution system for goods. Um, so, and, and that's goods, not just food goods, but it also includes medical supplies for the small and medium-sized hospitals that are throughout the northern part of Japan. So I think it's a, a very complicated logistical problem to have the right balance of control while still allowing the private side to contribute its um, efforts and initiatives to solving the problem. And that includes the private side of volunteers like Takashi, as well as foreign volunteers, as well as volunteers from the private sector within Japan who might have supplies and goods available. But we're all familiar with the reports now of um, the French government suggesting that its uh, nationals leave, um, or at least go south towards Tokyo and perhaps leave. The United States is not suggesting that, but is urging U.S. Um, citizens and personnel not to go to Japan at the moment. There's been the redeployment around to the west of the U.S. Um, ships that are helping with the resupply out of the concern of radiation. Um, Gordon, do you think that um, there should be uh, a, an evacuation order that is a little bit wider than the 20-kilometer radius? Do you think um, at the moment we just don't know enough to make any further recommendations? Uh, I think we don't, don't, don't know enough to make that particular recommendation. Uh, if people are at uh, some distance from the site uh, and they're able to move much further away, perhaps to stay with relatives at a far distance, then it's entirely appropriate that, that they should do so. Uh, within the first few tens of kilometers of the site, there's been significant damage to transport infrastructure. Uh, so it's not clear from this vantage point uh, what is the appropriate recommendation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Michael, do you think um, you would have a question of, supposing you were really making some command and control decisions around the humanitarian response? I mean, really, think, think that, okay? What questions would you ask Gordon and Michael, your two consultants, um, in order to feel that you had some security of your uh, directions to the humanitarian community? What have you not heard from them that you need to know? Well, I think Michael brings up this, and this excellent point of uh, the need to consider and um, to some degree allow uh, the civilian response capacity. It's an important piece of it, and, and a lot of this cannot be done only by the military or by um, kind of more formal structures. Th that's a, an excellent point, and I think I would ask them if I was in a position of uh, command and control um, and helping direct services and resources to displaced populations and those who've been evacuated and those who've been displaced and in shelters and trying to give them material resources, um, very hard facts and simple facts about exposure and, and threats to aid workers, threats to 
relief workers, threats to uh, anybody that enters a certain zone. I would like to know, uh, I think that the messaging that um, is coming out is uh, sometimes difficult for the general public to interpret. And I would think that it would be an essential feature to not only communicate to the general affected public, but also the relief providers as to exactly where is safe, what are the risks, what precautions need to be taken um, to remove some of the mystery around exposure. Mm -hmm. could, could we have the slide back up? I know it means we won't get to see Takashi for a moment, but could we bring that slide back up that has the conversion rates from RADs and REMs to milli and micro sieverts? Um, this is a slide that uh, Gordon Thompson prepared for us, and it, it underscores in, in um, our, our collective view this problem of the mystery. Uh, because, um, Gordon, do you want to walk us through it here about Japan is using these, these tiny units of radiation, whereas we in the United States those of us who think about massive nuclear catastrophes, we're using the bigger measures of RADs and REMs. Yes, well, the situation is further complicated because uh, in Japan, the standard international units, the metric-based units, are used, whereas uh, in the United States, we're familiar with an older system of units. Uh, we talk about REMs of uh, effective dose, whereas the in standard international unit is the sievert. Uh, but you're right uh, in that, speaking in terms of um, microsieverts per hour, which is a unit that the Japanese authorities are using, uh, is inappropriate because that's the sort of unit that's appropriate for routine re operation and routine releases. Medical, medical imaging. Medical imaging or routine operation of a nuclear facility. But in an emergency situation, uh, those units are far too small to be appropriate. And uh, uh, in the U.S. context, we think of REM, and I assume in the Japanese context, people would think of sievert. Uh, the uh, fatal dose uh, from whole body exposure, uh, median dose is around uh, 350, 400 um, REM, or three and a half to four sievert. Delivered pretty quickly. Uh, delivered over a period of uh, hours, um, but in that case, death would follow over subsequent weeks. Um, but that, that gives you an indication of the sort of hazard that you're concerned. So a, f a few sieverts, if, you, if, you're, if the dose looks as though it'll be more than two or three sieverts um, over a period of plume passage, for example, then you know that you're in a potentially lethal situation. Whereas speaking in micro sieverts, is not helpful. And, you know, I might just add that some people to the lay public as well as, you know, I'm the medical lay public, I guess, um, and thinking of intervening or, or being part of this relief effort, I would want to know things in very common parlance. So, like, for example, you know, the, the exposure that I am getting, is it, is it equivalent to a CAT scan? Is it equivalent to a, an X-ray? What, what's the sort of dose equivalency if it makes sense to talk about it that way? Just because it's a frame of reference that we have around radiation in common, uh, sort of common language. And if we can talk about it that way um, in terms of exposure, it might help reassure us that this ex there is exposure and that it's, it's fairly either it's minute exposure or it's, it's very important. Right. Perhaps I could speak to that, gentlemen. Yes, please. Uh, you'll and then, see at the then bottom my, of yeah. this slide, there's a 
statement that the background dose in the United States to a typical person is around 6.2 uh, millisievert per year or 620 millirem per year. That's background in the sense that it combines naturally occurring uh, radiation exposure with medical exposure. That number's actually gone up in recent years due to the use of CAT scans and such like. Uh, it used to be a rather smaller number. Um, but that uh, gives you a comparison with the um, levels I was just talking about. So now 6.2 millisievert per year. Um, fatal range, um, 3 sievert and up. Michael. So uh, just to um, reiterate uh, my previous points, I think that um, this kind of communication ought to be something that your grandmother would understand. So the area that was affected is an area with a high proportion of elderly people, high proportion of fishermen, farmers, and it, the, the communication from the government and from the company ought to be in terms that are readily understandable, consistent, on a regular basis. Like maybe there should be a nine o'clock report every day that's an update that's directed at people so that they can understand it in their own terms. Uh, and I think that is something that, uh, if it were done, would contribute to building up some sense of social trust. Well, th thank you. Um, you will um, now be put to the test by questions from our panel, um, I mean questions from our audience to the panel. And uh, if we could take this down and, and allow Takashi to be visible to all of us, it is possible that we will um, have questions directed to Nakashi directly, which is completely fine. Uh, so could I have um, um, hands? And we have microphones, so people will be able to um, raise questions, and it will be excellent. Um, yes, please. Um, I have a question about the radiation releases that have been reported to date. Uh, my understanding is that we have spent fuel pools where the coolant has dropped and the uh, spent fuel rods are exposed or maybe even on fire. And you've got buildings that have lost their roofs. There have been explosions and buildings are open to the elements, so rain is coming down into these uh, re reactor buildings. Um, birds are flying around. Who knows what's going on? And yet, this morning, someone said on the radio on NPR that uh, the radiation was uh, similar to what you get background radiation for a month. You know, so it didn't seem to make sense to me. And I'm just wondering, how could you have exposed spent fuel rods, fires in the containment buildings, loss of roofs and ceilings and exposure and not have higher radiation releases? Yes, I think that that is a question a lot of people have. Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking. So, I uh, think that goes to you, sir. Okay. Uh, there, are, there are two, at least two questions there. Uh, firstly, uh, units one through three are suffering core damage accidents and perhaps spent fuel pool accidents as well. The spent fuel pool is located at 
the top of the reactor building, uh, which in each case is, is damaged, units one and three, in, in fact, destroyed at that location. Uh, and unit four does not have fuel in its reactor, but its spent fuel pool is overheating and there has been some burning. Uh, fortunately, to date, the releases from these damaged reactor cores and spent fuel pools has been comparatively low. Uh, I say comparatively because the level of radiation dose on the site has caused the uh, removal of most of the workers from the site. And for a, a period in the last 24 hours, the removal of the remaining skeleton crew for several hours from the site. The, the dose is, is uh, significant. However, it is a tiny fraction of what the dose would be if a large release were to occur. Uh, and it, as every day passes, the level of radioactivity in the reactor cores declines. Um, however, um, there is still sufficient uh, activity that uh, a fatal dose from plume exposure could still occur. Um, for a number of kilometers, t perhaps 10 or more kilometers downwind. This is very weather dependent. Uh, when people speak of uh, very small uh, radiation doses, um, typically they're talking about readings at uh, a far distance. And in, indeed, at far distances, uh, radiation from this uh, event has led to quite small increases in naturally occurring uh, levels of uh, radiation exposure. Um, and that's uh, correct, but it's not helpful. Um, we really should be focused at this time on the potentially very large uh, and fatal exposures that could occur. Uh, if we focus on that, we can take the steps necessary uh, to reduce the chance of such an occurrence as much as possible. Thank you. Um, next question, please. It's now Komieke, a doctorate student studying at HSPH. I have uh, a question to Dr. Thompson. Um, I would like to ask you about the inconsistency, inconsistency of information, especially about the recommendation from two governments from the U.S. and Japan. U.S. Uh, Pentagon just released uh, that the U.S. citizens should evacuate 80 kilometers away from the nuclear plant. However, the, the Japanese uh, government is still insisting that two, 20 kilometers is, is enough. Which uh, recommendation should the people should follow? And the second question actually goes to uh, Dr. Leaning. Is there any support from HSPH on epidemiologists uh, who is specialized in the uh, natural disaster? We would like to ask for your help. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, um, Gordon, Dr. Thompson. Uh, in, re in response to the question as to an appropriate evacuation distance, as I mentioned earlier, from this standpoint, uh, right here in this room, it's, it's not possible to uh, make a re specific recommendation. Uh, <coughs> I'll repeat the general recommendation I made before, which is people at a considerable distance, um, you know, perhaps 80, kilometers, uh, if they have the opportunity to go to a much further distance, uh, then it would be wise for them to do so uh, until this situation is, is resolved. Closer to the plant, at distance of perhaps 20, 30, 40 kilometers, uh, it's important to consider the status of the transport infrastructure. 
And if, if the infrastructure is severely damaged, <clears throat> it may not make sense for many people to attempt to move at that point. And I, I lack any information to speak further. So this is the decision dilemma um, that if you order an evacuation closer to the plant and there is a significant massive release, then you have all these people on the road who are not sheltered at all and they can't move because the transport doesn't work or there's gridlock with traffic and here they are out in the open with a plume going over them. So the question is where do you ask people to evacuate and at, you know, how far distant, and then in the closer range, perhaps the best thing to do would be shelter in, in their houses, which is, you know, an option, maybe the only option. But then you hit the points that Dr. Van Royen is saying, which is, how are you going to resupply all these tens of thousands of people that are sheltering in their homes? If so, isn't it wiser for the U.S. government to just stay or stick with the Japanese government's decision or release? So the, the U.S. government is making its recommendation for U.S. citizens. There's a much smaller number of U.S. citizens who are affected. So it doesn't raise some of the questions. Um, and uh, so it's easier for the U.S. government to recommend a larger margin of safety than for the Japanese government to do. Uh, one other comment. Um, Mike, do you want to speak to um, epidemiologists and disaster experts in the Harvard School of Pu Public Health since you direct the center for it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, am, um, I think that organizations that seek to serve displaced populations, especially in this region, um, need to do so with the help of highly trained public health people. I think that this is the, the realm of public health in many ways. Uh, is, is understanding population needs, it's understanding population movement, population dynamics. Um, it is important, however, that they're the right people, both linguistically, as I mentioned, and people that can actually get to the site and work well with an organization. Um, certainly, we have uh, um, a reasonable cadre of people at the school that might be deployed under certain circumstances. Um, I think I would be careful about the kind of people that I would deploy. Not, not careful from their perspective, I mean, I'll be careful from their perspective, but I'm uh, careful to make sure that they are appropriate and that they could actually work and be value-added uh, with an organization there. I think that um, there are many excellent uh, technical resources in Japan as well that could be deployed for these, uh, th this type of service. Um, so I would like to be cautious and I think to, to some degree conservative about the the type of people that we can send as, as um, uh, human resources. Thank you. Yes, a question back here. Uh, Miwako Hosoda, the research fellow of HSPH. Um, my question about the aid from foreign countries. So Dr. Nakata, so to be honest, do you think Japan need uh, aid from other countries? If so, what kind of aid is necessary? And where is the place who can contact with? So, Dr. Nagata, did you hear that question was addressed to you? Yes, I can hear the question. Um, honestly, so far, regarding the emergency, the foreign support is, we need all kinds of support, but 
the support from foreign countries might cause confusion in the area, especially the people who cannot speak Japanese can cause confusion. So it is there, it is acute phase, so the people from who cannot speak English should be outside and stay there for a while. If the situation became stable, then you can you can go inside or、well, you can come. They will be happy to welcome you. But now it it's it's not stable. In it's dangerous. Well, no, I'm sorry, it's not dangerous is not is not appropriate word. It's not good time for foreign so foreign humanitarian supporters to visit Iwaki City right now. I think so. Please stay there for a while. <laughs> This is my answer. Thank you.、Uh, that's that's very helpful.、Uh, it, he、mm. used the word、um, dangerous and、mm. and unstable. Mike used the word fragile. I'm not sure what words Michael Reich or Gordon might use, but it is. It is, despite the terrible, sweeping nature of this disaster, the human context is actually very complicated, and that's what is part of another decision dilemma. This is not a place where you can have U.S. helicopters drop vast pallets of food and water and expect that to be helpful.、Uh, Yes, there was another hand here. Yes, please.、Hi. Yeah. Yes. Hi, I'm I'm Robin Herman. I'm director of the forum, and I'm asking a question on behalf of someone who was following our event through the Reuters.com blog that is blogging this live right now.、Um, this person asked, and there are a number of other people have asked the same thing. Are concerned about、uh, possible water contamination. Is drinking water going to be safe? Would fish or seaweed consumption be safe? Or、uh, become risky because of the situation. What is the impact on the the food chain? What is the possible impact on the food chain? Thank you,、uh, Dr. Thompson.、Um, part of emergency response in an incident like this is to、um, take a very careful look at the food chain and then interdict it where necessary to keep contaminated food away from human consumption. Uh, that's not a, an immediate priority,、um, particularly because the earthquake and the tsunami、uh, have interrupted、uh, local farming and, and fishing.、Um, that's、uh, a matter that should be attended to, but、uh, I, I think it, if, if I were in the decision、uh, tree,、um, I'd be focusing on more immediate issues right now and get to that one. Perhaps a week or two out. Mike, do you want to comment on that? Because、um, we're going to bring in bottled water, presumably, if we're. Yeah, and and again, I think that、uh, there are some uh, um, issues of efficiency of distribution, so that it it may be、um, the the bottleneck, as it were, of supplying things. It may be a, a bit of a problem. I think that、um, addressing the. You know, basic access to food and water, and sanitation, and and housing. I think is the first priority. I think monitoring those、uh, potential exposures in the future is important. But I mean, I agree with Gordon. I think that those relief priorities need to take precedence so that people have、um, immediate resources and appropriate resources now. 
Michael, you know about the economies there and the local um, issues around production and returning to work, uh, fishing or farming. What's your sense, in, in the light of the contamination question, but more generally as well? What um, do you think about the longer term here? I think, so I think part of the, the impact of the tsunami was just to wipe out entire villages. So there's been a tremendous impact on the infrastructure. Uh, and, th and that affects access to clean water, it affects access to electricity, and has, I think in that sense, immediate concerns about contamination. I think the, um, the long-term social impact is also something that's going to be critical to address. Um, there have been studies done in this country, one of the classic studies is by Kai Erickson on the Buffalo Creek disaster, which was a, a dam that broke and wiped out an entire village. What, what he found was that it destroyed the social fabric, the sense of community, uh, in ways that was really difficult to rebuild. And when you have small fishing villages where 50% of the people, uh, through some quirk of fate, end up being swept out to sea and 50% end up surviving, it is extremely difficult to rebuild a vibrant community. You can put the infrastructure back in, you can give them ships, but creating a, a sense of wholeness and, and rebuilding a sense of um, feeling comfortable with what's happened is, is going to be a long-term and difficult project. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, yes, please, question. Um, Dr. Thompson, I'm Sun Youngman, studying with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, um, doing a master's in public health too. I, um, what I've learned so far is um, the problem with the Fukushima um, nuclear plant is that it is overheating and there is a lack of clean water to cool it down. So, um, and obviously salt water is not adequate either because um, in, in this environment of high pressure it would uh, actually cause further explosions. Um, can you tell us something about possible attempts to find alternative ways of cooling down the reactors? The use of seawater for cooling indicates that uh, all fresh water supplies have, have been lost. There are large tanks on site and the site would be connected to municipal water supplies. Uh, all of that has been lost as evidenced by the use of seawater. Um, the use of seawater will ensure that the plants uh, cannot be used again in the future, but it also introduces complications because if you're in a boiling situation, uh, you'll have a lot of salt crystallization and you'd expect after time, after a period of time, you'd start to jam up valves and, and the like with salt crystals. So it's an indication of being in a really dire situation with very poor alternatives. Uh, I would assume that the, the authorities are um, thinking about stabilization of the site, um, which will be a concern, f even if, if we're lucky and, and no big release occurs, stabilization will be a challenge for weeks and months to, to come. Uh, and that will require, among other things, bringing in barges, um, because the, rest of the transport infrastructure is damaged, so barges will need to come in carrying fresh water and heavy equipment. By sea, you mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I hope that thought is being given to that phase.
could I just follow up? Because I think it's a very, very good question. Uh, we, um, we hear on the news that, that perhaps there should be, you know, a fire hose on a big ladder brought close to pour seawater in or through a breach in the external containment wall. Uh, and then a comment, well, that won't be enough water to deal with the heat inside. Uh, and you know well at Chernobyl, the helicopter pilots that came in and that deposited the heavy materials to try to put down that fire, which was a very different kind of event than what we're looking at now. But still, there were helicopters and the pilots all died from radiation exposure. Uh, what, here's a decision question. What would you do if you were in charge of what, what must happen? And what do you mean by stabilization? Um, <clears throat> let me ask the, answer the stabilization question first. That's um, keeping the cores and the spent fuel pools filled with water and keeping that water cooled uh, for, the, for the months and years during which cleanup uh, will require. Uh, and in a stable situation, you will not be relying upon skid-mounted diesel pumps and fire hoses drawing from the ocean. That, that's kind of be at most a very short-term solution. It's very problematic, as I described earlier. Um, so that's the stabilization challenge. Uh, the on-site emergency response challenge uh, is to take um, actions um, that involve very high worker exposure. And often they're ad hoc. They're jury-rigged uh, solutions made up on the spot. Um, they Clearly, if you have fire trucks and skid-mounted diesel pumps and, and hoses, um, you're in an operating environment that was never contemplated. There was never any rehearsal for it. Um, I do not know the um, practice or the regulatory practice in Japan. In the United States, um, there is a provision for worker exposure up to 25 rem in emergency and 75 rem to conduct life-saving activity in an emergency. And that's, it's quite a substantial dose, a 75 rem dose. It's not yet in the fatal range, but uh, you could expect morbidity and life shortening. Um, but that is a provision in U.S. regulations, um, and uh, typically volunteers would be requested for that um, function. Thank you. Um, yes, question. Thank you. Hi, yes. my name is Aya Yamamoto, and I'm a first-year master's student in EPI. And my question is, if in an emergency situation in which the radiation levels become harmful to humans, um, is the current communication infrastructure in Japan uh, sufficient to reach the, the citizens in proximity to the power plant? Excellent question. Um, Professor Reich, communication systems. Uh, the short answer is I have no idea. Um, and um, typically what would happen is there would be trucks driving around with loudspeakers on them. And um, so then the question is, well, how much has the roads been damaged and uh, either by the earthquake or by the water damage? Um, then you get to, well, is there electricity and can people listen to radios? Or, um, or can you get to, um, or, or 
the internet is not working well in those areas. So it is a real problem if you have people diffuse in their own homes, as opposed to if they're in specific centers, that makes the communication somewhat easier. Dr. Van Royen, um, in part based on your experience in many settings, I'm thinking about Hurricane Katrina. What are some of the problems um, in big shelters and what, what are the public health and medical needs that need to be met? If, we, if the government were going to congregate people into shelters for a variety of reasons, and uh, I might ask Dr. Nagata to t talk about the problems he saw in the shelters um, after Dr. Van Royen talks. And I'll be brief because I'd be interested also in Dr. Nagata's uh, um, assessment. I will say only that um, uh, uh, shelters can be extremely useful to gather people for the distribution of goods and services and to provide uh, temporary housing. Um, they are a transient solution at best, and they're not designed to keep people for um, any significant amount of time. I think that uh, there are many problems then with shelter existence, uh, both the uh, issues related to the psychological disruption, disruption of social fabric, as well as simply exposure to, uh, um, you know, infectious diseases and others. Now, I don't anticipate that would be a, a significant problem in Japan. I think that um, collecting people in shelters is uh, initially comforting and then ultimately pretty disruptive. And so I would be interested in see what, uh, what Takashi says about that. Takashi, you, can you say um, briefly, because we're nearing the end of our time, but you could, could you say something about some of the patients you saw or some of the problems around medical supplies? You, you, I know you have, in the shelters. The yes, the people I saw in the shelters, um, about 30% of the people in the shelters are older people who do not have medical supply. Uh, the medication is, uh, it's the medication for hypertension, diabetes, or other chronic disease. And when I visit the shelter, a lot of people became panicked because they have no more medication. What she or he did not take medication for in the last two or three days. In the medical, so I think it's medical supply for older people is also critical in the medical support in shelters in the Israel's country like Japan. Thank you. Thank you. That's very helpful. Perhaps we have one last mm. question. Do we have time? Or are we um, at a place? One more minute? Well, one more <laughs> couple yes. of minutes. Um, uh, this is again from an, uh, an online um, person is, uh, who, who's viewing us uh, right now asks about the increasing, uh, we've just been talking about it, the increasing uh, medical needs that are anticipated. But uh, I, I would add that these people who are in need, as we've heard, of uh, food, shelter, uh, water, uh, this is a critical situation for them. How many more days or weeks can a population go without um, these, um, these necessary um, uh, supports and uh, and not get sick and not uh, uh, you know expire. It's a very good question, and you heard I think in Iwaki, in Dr. Nagata's discussion of Iwaki City that uh, he had to leave because he was so alarmed about the shortage of supplies, and he went to Tokyo to raise the alert in a press conference with the Japanese Medical Association in order to get 
the government to begin to bring supplies, including medical care, up to this city of half a million people almost, which is swollen because of the evacuees from the disaster area. So uh, this question about how long people can hold out, Mike, what's your sense? Uh, I know it depends on what their supplies are to begin with, but what's your sense about um, these large congregations of populations that so far have not been reached by um, much in the way of humanitarian relief? Right. Well, I, I think the, you know, the, the basic necessities emerge so that it'll be, uh, of course, absolutely essential to have um, water and food and particularly for families that are displaced. And, you know, a big concern that anyone, anyone that has a grandparent or a parent, anyone that has a child or a family to, to look after will be just basic necessities. So access to water, access to, to appropriate food for your families. Um, when we say access to water, it's important to consider sanitation as well. So access not only to water for, for drinking, but for cleaning, for uh, bathing, and for cooking, for example, if that can be the case. Um, I think uh, Dr. Nagata has got a, had, had a great point and I think put it um, extremely well, and I won't reiterate except to say that the issues around um, access to medications or health services for elderly, uh, then after the basic necessities are provided, emerge as a, a very important uh, feature. Um, you know, as to how long, I mean, I think it really has to do with, uh, you know, people can last for days or even, you know, weeks um, if they have basic provisions. But I think after, you know, a week or after two weeks, uh, people will expect that some resolution is occurring, I think. So outside sense of the kind of privations people can endure in these um, in these settings where there are many survivors, but the relief hasn't come yet, would be about somewhere on the order of a week, two weeks. Uh, they've already done a lot of foraging. We know that. Um, so uh, the clock is ticking. Um, uh, Michael, would you like to sort of sum it up for us before we uh, bring the um, wonderful forum to a close? And thank you to the panel's uh, members and to the audience for this um, discussion. But what I'd like to do is see if Michael would like to give us a, um, a couple of closing thoughts, and then we will bring this to a close. So I think the closing message is that this is a terrible set of tragedies that would challenge any government and any people in the world. Um, and to the people of Japan and to the government of Japan, we really send our deeply heartfelt sympathy to everything that is going on there, and at the same time, uh, we are here ready to provide whatever assistance might be asked for. And that's at the technical level, uh, at the social level, uh, at the personal level. It, I think it requires uh, the Japanese to figure out how we can best assist them in confronting this terribly complex multiple set of crises and tragedies. Uh, that uh, around the world is uh, making everyone feel like, I wish there was something I could do. So thank you, Michael. I, I think that expresses the feelings of all of us in this room. So thank you again for being here with us. And uh, we will be following the disaster very closely and the expertise of the School of Public Health and students and friends and colleagues stands ready. Thank you. This has been a Harvard School of Public Health production. 
visit the forum on the web at www.forumhsph.org.